Our central text this morning is Romans 8. We've come to the end. Been a great chapter, hasn't it? Romans 8, 31 to 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us? From the love of Christ shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure... That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. I think you should just stay up. I think you're ready to preach this thing. Come on. I'm ready to hear it. (laughs) Uh, Good morning. My name is Chaz, and I'm uh, one of the pastors. How about we pray uh, before we get started? Lord, as um, the last several passages have really driven home this eternal love you have for us, I think it's also brought uh, squarely in focus the reality of how hard that is to really actually believe and how, um, how... void our lives of, of practically taking hold of that in the day-to-day realities of life. And so, Lord, I can't uh, rewire somebody's story. I can't do anything other than what you want to do up here this morning. And what I ask that you would do is deep, deep in and further in, would you help build us this understanding of this love that you have for us, that nothing, it is a love that can never be lost. And so I pray against the work of the evil one who wants to take seeds away like this one especially. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Um, Well, Michael Orr this week uh, filed a petition. The retired NFL uh, left tackle filed a petition in a Tennessee court uh, to essentially uh, what's happening is he's accusing folks, Sean and Leanne Tui, that they never actually adopted him, but rather signed a conservatorship in order to sort of make money off his name, image, and likeness and uh, conduct business in his names. If you don't recognize that name and need a refresher, his story was told in a 2006 book and then in an Oscar-winning film in 2009 called The Blind Side. And as a teenager, uh, Michael Orr lived in grinding poverty but was taken in by this really wealthy Memphis family who let him live in their home and, uh, you know, sort of took care of him. But what made it tricky is this relationship is Michael Orr was a prized college football recruit at the time. He was very interested in Ole Miss, and that happens to be where Sean and Leanne were uh, big boosters there. 
But the film, what, what they had to do to navigate uh, the NCAA, the complexity of that, is they had to enter into a legal relationship with him. He needed to become part of the family. And the film depicts it as like this just kind of mere formality. He was already part of a family. If, you've, if you saw the film, you know what I'm talking about. This is a feel-good movie. This is it's a little cringy stereotypes at times, but ultimately it's, it's about family. It's about risk. It's, you know, it's about compassion and about love. And these facts of this case will certainly be argued in court. There's, there's confusion on both sides as I've read more. But bottom line is this. This is what we know. A love relationship has been severed. They've been separated. This love they had is gone. And forever, and somebody's not telling the truth. When I read this on Monday, I actually had a visceral response. I felt punched in the gut, and just this immediate cynicism that first thing out of my mouth was, There are no happy endings, you know? Well, it was Mondays. Pastors are really bad on Mondays anyway. Just wanted you to know that. But I got out of that. But I was like, Not this, too. And I'm not terribly attracted, you know, attached to the story, but I think what I'm attached to is the story. The story I've lived and you've lived. Whether it was romantic or a friend relationship, all of us at some point in life have experienced a love and a relationship and it's been separated, hasn't it? Something happened. They changed. You changed. There was a disagreement. Maybe they moved. Maybe there was a fight. Or maybe worse, death itself has separated that relationship. And the reality is, is we grieve these losses, don't we? They're intense and they're hard, hard. In fact, so hard to get over, we really, it's one of the things that keeps us in life from moving forward towards people is we, we fear losing this. Even our closest relationships with our closest friends, there's always that fear, that Lana Del Rey song, you know, will you still love me when I'm young and beautiful? Will you love me if I do this? Will you love me if I'm not useful anymore? Will, will it stop? Will be there's something I can do, and the reason we fear this and why it hurts so much is because the truth is, the Bible's been telling us we've been designed for a love that was never meant to be lost. We are hardwired to never lose love like that. We're in the end here, and Steve was right. This is the end of a glorious chapter, and really, the Apostle Paul, it's like he's starting the grand finale at the end in Romans chapter eight because he's he's answering this question: Is there a love? That can never be lost, because it is one of the things we most need to know in life, but we'd most doubt. So we'll look at it, just three things. A love that can never be lost in our suffering, in our suffering. Two, a love that can never be lost, actually in our battles with sin. And three, a love that can never be lost more than conquerors. So in our suffering, in our battles with sin, and we are more than conquerors because it's a love that can never be lost. So let's just dive right in, because I know it's summertime and people have been in and out, it's kind of ending now, but the reality is, is one of the things about Romans 8 is this is glorious passage, but people, what gets lost in that is Romans 8 was written to suffering people, and we've been really hitting that so far. Romans 8 was written by the Apostle Paul for assurance reasons. He's trying to comfort people who are really suffering, and what was happening is first century Rome, if you were a Christian, lives were starting to come apart at the seams. Uh, the heat had been really uh, turned up. Now, the first century church, they weren't persecuted because they worshiped Jesus. They were per persecuted because they wouldn't worship 
all these other gods. Now, just stay with me, because I already see some of you drifting. Uh, stay with this, because in the first century, what happened is, and this is very relevant for today, uh, there were these things called trade guilds, which were sort of like unions, uh, and this is how you got work. But these guilds typically had a god that you had to worship. Well, what happened if you were a Christian? You would not drop the knee and worship this god, and all of a sudden, you're losing your income. And then what most turned up the heat for first century Christians was Caesar wasn't just Caesar. This was a cult, the imperial cult. He was worshipped. Christians were called atheists by Rome because they would not worship and say Caesar is Lord. They were saying Jesus is Lord. And so everywhere they turned, life was hard, uh, very difficult. Every door was closing in front of them. And what happens to you and I when life is hard? What happens? One of the first temptations you and I face when life gets hard is that immediately we just start to sort of pine for better days in the future, right? When things are really, really hard, one of the things we most face is that things are so challenging, we start to hope for the future, that things in our circumstances will get better, or we start to daydream about the past and we think, golly, if I could only get my life back. It's one of the things, because when things are really hard, we just kind of grasp for straws, but it shouldn't be lost in us that the Apostle Paul here does not turn his audience's attention at all to the promise of life getting better. Think about that. I mean, you're facing everything possible death. And Paul's making no promises that if you just hold out, hang on, or I can give you a few tips how to avoid all these troubles. He does none of that. Not one bit of it. In fact, he leans right into it and he says, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. He even quotes from Isaiah during a very hard time in Israel's history. Excuse me, sorry. Coffee's hitting me right now. Uh, sound like Bob Euchre, Israel's history. Uh, anyway, <laughs> I don't know how that happened. He says, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. Look, this is him not being glib or trite or dismissive of the hard things they're facing. I want us to read this because the Apostle Paul <laughs> faced these things himself. In fact, I was reading this last night and I just took it all in. Like, wow, there's a lot. He says five times. I at the hands of the Jews. So he's even getting persecuted by his own people. The 40 lashes, less one. Five times? Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day adrift at the sea. On frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, from robbers. My own people, Gentiles, danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea. Danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship. Through many a sleepless night, I feel you, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from all of this, there's the daily pressure of anxiety on the churches. It should be duly noted, apart from all this, I also had to be a pastor on top of all that, okay? <laughs> on all of that, nobody in their right mind would read what he's saying right now and say, where can I sign up for that? Because that's the life I want. But he does not. And I really want you to hear, because if you're not suffering, you're going to need this one day. He does not promise anything about things improving. 
Instead, what he does is he asks five unanswerable questions. We're going to just take on one. And the reason why they're unanswerable is because they're hypothetical. They're, they're rhetorical. They're questions where the answers are in the questions themselves. You already know. And it's the main question he asks is, if God is for us, who can be against us? Everything seems to be against us right now. What are you talking about? If God is for us, who can be against us? This is a man suffering, writing to suffering people, and he's drilling this in. If God is for us, do you hear? Who can be against us? Why is he saying that? Because this is the question you and I ask when we suffer, isn't it? Because this is the question when life is really, really hard. If the unthinkable happens or has happened, if the unexpected, when life is really, really hard and everything is happening, you can't help but believe that you feel like God is against you. What have I done to deserve this? What are you doing? <laughs> Do you care? Uh, where's your compassion? Have you abandoned me? And adding to this is there's this false belief among first century Christians. They believed that, you know, both pagans and Jews believed that whatever God you worshiped, if you were living right, doing right, making all the sacrifices, pushing all the right levers, then your life should go well. <laughs> if you're not, if your life's going really hard, then you must have done something to anger this God. He's turned his face against you. He's against you right now because you've done something to deserve it. Wow. It's one of the reasons actually people rejected Jesus because they, could, they looked at his life and say, how could you be the anointed one? Your life is just full of hard things and suffering. You're in poverty. How could this even be true? That was true in the first century, but it's true for many of you in this room. There are many of us, even now on the 21st century West, we are most tempted when the heat's really turned up in our lives to believe that God is against us and that he, is, he doesn't care, and that he is not for us. Paul is not being glib here. Because what happened in his suffering is the apostle Paul understood, and he, Jesus took him by the hand, and he taught him what he and what you and I most need to know when we are suffering, and it's this. God is not against us. He's not. Because the reality is this. I want to tell you this. Right now, if you're not convinced of that, what will happen is if you're constantly living on the edge that maybe God's against you, and all of a sudden, you know, things are really hard. You're thinking, wow, he's really turned his face against me. But if all of a sudden things get better, what will happen is you start to believe, well, you know, he's happy with me again. And you'll live in this constant fear of the hammer about to drop. At any given moment, if you slip up, you had a bad day, and that he's going to turn his face against you, and you'll enter into this very transactional relationship with him. He's been telling us, because we have been foreloved, we've been known, we've been loved based on nothing we've ever done, good or bad, and because we are justified in Christ, and because our future is so certain he can speak of it, in the past tense, then what he's saying is, is you're not conservators. You're his adopted children. He will never turn his face against you. It's our suffering, if anything, that most vividly shows that you are his child. Why? Because he suffered. And then when you're his child and you're united to him, 
your life's going to look like his and what a lot of things that happened to him. The New Testament, the writers of the New Testament, over and over, search every page of the New Testament, all of the apostles, to people who are really hurting, they never point to the promise of better life circumstances. Not once. Not once. But they point to a greater gift that has already been given. And it's an argument here in verse 32 that you have everything God has already given you that you need right now. Again, he's not being glib. His life, you read the list, how hard it was. But this is a man who's utterly convinced because he has encountered a love so deep, so wide, that nothing could separate it. And he is saying, if God has already given us his son and not withheld it, when we were at our worst, how much more can he take care of you and show up for you and be with you in your suffering? He's trying to grab our hearts and say, put your hope in that and not on the promise of things getting better. And I just want to point to it. There's a way, there's a path in life to get to a place where you're so convinced of his love that you can literally say, whatever gain I had or whatever loss I've had for the sake of Christ, I absolutely count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. And for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. How was he able to speak so assuredly, so confidently? Because he knew, he knew, he knew the secret that God was for him no matter what. When my dear friend Travis was dying, a lot of you in the room don't know Travis because he's been gone for a while now, but uh, just an amazing human being. Never met anybody like him and most selfless person, but he had a deep love for Christ. But just a couple of months before he died, I remember him sharing this with me. He said, you know, Chaz, I, I am now convinced that God loves me. <laughs> like, if you knew him, you would never have guessed that he doubted. But, you know, it just, it was encouraging because, you know, all of us doubt, Right? All of us always wonder, even the best of us always have these doubts and wonder, are you really for me? But it was in the fire. It was in the fire where he really found the same thing the apostle had, where his doubts were burned up and replaced with a confidence that there's a love that even suffering can't take away. So let's take a look at the second point. As much as tough as suffering is, and sometimes we can feel like God's against us, there's this other reality that because Christ is working in our lives in such a way that he's bringing out the glory in us and making us more into the image of Christ, there's a sense in which when Christ is rooting out sin in our lives, you can begin to feel that he is against you, especially if you're looking for sins to comfort you or give you your identity or to make it through life, and you can feel like he's against you as he's working out his glory in us. And so instead of trying to explain this more, I'm just going to read. Um, C.S. Lewis, has anybody read The Great Divorce before? It's weird, okay? It's like a fever dream or something. I don't know how to explain it, but it's very odd. But it's about this book. It's about a story of a bunch of people on a bus on their way to take up residence in hell, okay? And we're like, where is this headed? Um, and they pass through heaven. And as they pass near heaven in close proximity to the plains of heaven, 
all the members of the bus, they all look more frail and thin and ghost-like and, and, and wispy. And most of them, they don't even want to get off the bus because they would rather be in the comforts of the bus where they're headed. Uh, but one such man, he actually ventured out off the bus and into the plains of heaven. And it's a man who wanted to stay a little bit longer, but he had this pesky little pet with him, this weird red lizard, okay? Some of you are wondering, what was C.S. Lewis doing when he wrote this, okay? <laughs> it's getting weirder and weirder. It's this red lizard, but it represents his sin. And so as he's walking through and he realizes this lizard made a promise to him that he wouldn't be chatty when they got to heaven so they could stay longer. And the lizard starts talking so much. So he realizes, I got to leave. I got to go back to the bus. So he says, as he's beginning to leave, all of a sudden there's this voice that says, off so soon? Yes, I'm off, said the ghost. Thanks for all your hospitality, but it's no good. You see, I told this little chap talking about the lizard that he'd have to be quiet if he came, which he insisted on doing, but he won't stop. I shall have to go home. Would you like me to make him quiet, said the spirit, an angel, as I now understood. Well, of course I would, said the ghost. Then I will kill him, said the angel, taking a step forward. Uh, look out, you're burning me, keep away, said the ghost, retreating. Don't you want him killed? Well, you didn't say anything about killing him at first. I hardly meant to bother you anything so drastic as that. It's the only way, said the angel, whose burning hands were now very close to the lizard. May I kill it? Well, there's time to discuss that later. There is no time. May I kill it? Please. I never meant to be such a nuisance. Please, really, don't bother. Look, it's gone to sleep on its own accord. I'm sure it'll be all right now. Thanks ever so much. May I kill it? Honestly, I don't think there's the slightest necessity for that. <laughs> I'm sure I should be able to keep it in order. In fact, I think the gradual process would be far better than killing it. The gradual process is of no use at all. Get back, you're burning me. How can I tell you to kill it? You'd kill me if you did. It is not so. Why, you're hurting me now. I never said it wouldn't hurt you. I said it wouldn't kill you. Oh, I know. You think I'm a coward, but it isn't that. Really, it isn't. I say, let me run back by tonight's bus and get an opinion from my own doctor, and I'll come again in the, first of the, in the morning. This moment contains all moments. The angel's hands were almost closed, closed on the lizard, but not quite. And then the lizard began chattering to the ghost so loud that even I could hear what it was saying. Be careful. <laughs> he can do what he says. He can kill me. And one fatal word from you and he will. And then you'll be without me forever and ever. And it's not natural. How could you live? You'd only be a sort of a ghost, not a real man as you are now. He doesn't understand. It might be natural for him, but it isn't for us. Yes, yes. I know there are no real pleasures now, only dreams. But aren't they better than nothing? And I'll be so good. I'll admit, I've sometimes gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. I'll give you nothing but really nice dreams, all sweet and fresh and almost innocent. Have I per your permission? I know it will kill me. It won't. But supposing it did. You're right. It would be better to be dead than to live with this creature. Then I may. Darn and bless you. Go on. Can't you get it over with? Do what you like. God help me. God help me. <laughs> Everybody still with this? <laughs> or am I all by myself in my fever dream here? Uh, <laughs> okay. Next moment, the ghost gave a scream of agony such as I never heard on earth. 
and the burning one closed his crimson grip on the reptile, twisted it, and while it bit and writhed, and then flung it broken-backed on the turf. And for a moment, I could make out only nothing distinctly. And then I saw between me and the nearest bush, unmistakably solid and growing every minute solid earth. The upper arm and the shoulder of a man, then brighter and still stronger, the legs and hands, the neck and golden head materialized. And while I watched the actual completing of a man, an immense man, naked, not much smaller than the angel. And what just first distracted me was the fact that at the same moment, something seemed to be happening to the lizard. And at first I thought the operation had failed. So far from dying, the creature was still struggling, even growing bigger as it struggled. And suddenly I started back, rubbing my eyes, and what stood before me was the greatest stallion I've ever seen. Silvery white, but with mane and tail of gold. And it was smooth and shining, rippled with swells of flesh and muscle, whinnying and stamping with its hoofs. And each stamp, the land shook and the trees trembled. And the new-made man turned and clapped the new horse's neck. It's nosed his bright body. Horse and master breathed into each other's nostrils, and the man turned from it, flung himself at the feet of the burning one, and embraced them. And when he rose, I thought his face shone with tears, but it may have only been the liquid love and brightness. This glorious chapter began with these words. There is, therefore, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Why? Because he's condemned sin in the flesh. Why? Because he has foreloved you. Why is there no condemnation? Because Christ has condemned the sin. He's taken the lizard because he's for you, not against you. Even in your battles with sin, and you say, don't take that from me. How can you be for me and take that away from me? Because he's for you and he's not condemning you, he's condemning the lizard and he's thrown it to the ground so that you can really come to life. Because he has foreloved you. Your destiny, your destiny is to literally be created into the image of Christ, to be so like him, to be like him. It's crazy. Because he's remaking you with, and me with faces of liquid love and brightness. There's been a lot of airspace here talking about suffering and how intense it is. And the reason was Paul's saying, if the worst form of suffering can't separate you from his love, neither can your battles with sin. Do you understand? He's that committed to bringing out this glory in your life because he's loved you forever Nothing will come against it. He will win this battle. He will condemn what is coming against you so that you can live. He will root it out. He will put it on the cross and get rid of it. And he will keep coming over and over because he loves you. Evil's greatest work is in the work of condemnation. When evil is thrown down, they say about Satan himself, the accuser of the brethren. This holy untrinity of the world, the flesh, and the devil is after us. And one of the hardest things every person in this room this morning faces is that inner condemning voice. Some stronger than others. 
that strong inner voice that's nagging and saying, you're not where you should be. You're not who you should be. You had these goals and you didn't make them. What happened? There's every day you're wondering, am I worthy of love? Have I done something to lose it? And you're earning and you're working, you're scratching and clawing for this, fearing it'll be lost and taken from you. And you wonder deep down, with Jesus Christ himself, have I done something? Is it enough? Where he's going to say, you know, enough's enough. And you'll be cast off. And the Apostle Paul is drilling this into people struggling with sin and suffering. This is what he gave them. This is what he fed them. And he says, no, death, nor life, angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all in creation, which is you, will ever be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Of suffering, nor under the painful work of him working out his glory and making you to the new person can ever separate you from this plan. It is a love that cannot be lost because he tells us why. Christ was killed like the lizard. (laughs) He was condemned. All the death, all the punishment fell on him. That's why he said it's finished when he was dying. But he was raised to life. It's the promise and the hope that when he was raised to life, that it truly is finished. There's nothing left to be done. And it proves that everything he had done happened, and it's real, and you can trust it, and you can bank your whole life on it. Yes, but he's also alive, sitting on a throne. (laughs) The one who said, I call you my friend, is a king sitting on the throne of the universe, literally right now, in his resurrected body. And what is he doing? He's living to intercede for you, right now, about all things. Nothing can take you out of his hands. Nothing will ever snatch you out of his hands. There's a funny Geico commercial where uh, Pinocchio, gosh, I laugh at silly things like this. Pinocchio is a motivational speaker, and he's standing in front of a group of people in a room of people who do not look like they're winning in life, and he looks at it and he says, when I look at this room, I see nothing but potential, and then just his nose starts growing, right? Okay, but you... You look at Romans 8, 37, I'm like, that just makes me think of the Geico commercial. Are you kidding me? More than conquerors? Do you know who you're talking to? These are people who are losing in life. This isn't Paul writing in 2023 and getting to look back at history. He's writing it in real time to people whose lives were being conquered. Their lives are being conquered. They were not winning the cultural narrative at all in the first century. They were not the movers and shakers at all. They had, there was nothing but potential in that room. In fact, if you walked into a church in the first century, you know, you would see the marginalized. You'd see the slaves. You'd see the poor. You would see women. You would see the people whose lives had been run amok. You would see the people whose lives who had no voice, no political power or influence, and certainly not any sort of religious rights, and yet whose faces were shining with liquid love and brightness and a simple fact of history 
And three centuries later, this worked. It worked. Peter Kreft says it this way, if Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, who started the resurrection myth and why, what profit did the liars get out of their lives? I'll tell you what they got out of it. They got mocked, hated, sneered, jeered at, exiled, deprived of property and reputation and rights, imprisoned, whipped, tortured, clubbed to a pulp, beheaded, crucified, boiled in oil, sawed in pieces, fed to lions, and cut to ribbon by gladiators. But if the miracle of the resurrection did not really happen, then an even more incredible miracle happened. Twelve Jewish fishermen invented the world's biggest life for no reason at all and died for it with joy, as did millions of others. This myth, this lie, this elaborate practical joke transformed lives, gave despairing souls a reason to live and selfish souls a reason to die, gave cynics joy and libertines conscience, put martyrs in the hymns and hymns in the martyrs and all for no reason, a fantastic con job, a myth, a joke, myth indeed. That's, that idea is the myth. The miracle is a sober fact. Fact. It's a simple and historical fact that Rome no longer exists. It doesn't. And you're here right now, today, and this morning from the diet the Apostle Paul fed people at their worst who are really hurting. Why has it survived? How? They believed Romans 8. That's how. They believed it, they taught it, they reinforced it, they lived it, they were changed by it because we are more than conquerors to the one who loved us. Jesus Christ came into the world to conquer it with his sacrificial love on the cross. That's his conquering work. And that's why you're here today because he's done that with you. And you might look at the world and think, well, how's that gonna happen? You might look at your own heart and see all the struggles and the dwelling sin and your condemnation, your temptations, your struggles, the lizard on your shoulder, if you will, and think, how am I a conqueror? Through a love that can never be lost, that's how. Through him who is our conqueror, who has removed every barrier possible in order to conquer you, you with his love. Lord, it is a, it's wonderful to point and even see how history we could even look and we could see Rome is a relic. And these marginalized people struggling with sin in their lives, struggling with no power, no influence, life just never getting better and no promise of it ever getting better. And yet here we are because you are the conqueror of love. And it's how we can shape and shift our world today. It's through this message and only it. And so I pray that you would first start in our hearts to actually believe you are for us. You're for us. You're not against us. And this is what changed the world. And if we want to be part of something like that, then we actually have to take hold of it today. So I pray that you would move heaven and earth to do that in our lives personally and privately so that publicly we begin to reflect that and change things. We thank you that all these things, Lord, nothing can separate us from your eternal love. It's a real reality. Help us to see, Lord, where we don't believe that and your kindness. Would you show that to us this week? Help us to be every moment of our lives more and more convinced of the surety and the promise of this reality. And that ultimately, Lord, you are conquering this world. You will be back here and we will be with you. 
you're with us now. You're on your throne. And we thank you for that. In your name, amen.